from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, September 4th. Today, the story behind why some political dissidents are being denied their right to an asylum hearing. We've been covering the situation in Nicaragua over the last few years, basically as it's descended deeper and deeper into chaos. We started hearing over the last few months that some of those people, including people who Post correspondents have interviewed in the past, had tried to migrate to the U.S. and upon arriving at the U.S. border, had been put on airplanes and sent directly back to Nicaragua. My name is Kevin Seif, and I am the Mexico and Central America Bureau Chief for The Post. So so normally, you could go to the U.S. border, and upon crossing the border, you could basically tell the agent, tell the immigration agent, that you're there because you're fleeing persecution in your country of origin. And that would sort of launch this asylum process. You would then have a credible fear interview, and eventually you would have you know, multiple court dates, and you'd present your case to an immigration judge. Bueno. Hola, Moises, ¿cómo estás? Hola, ¿qué tal, Kevin? ¿Cómo estás? So you've been interviewing multiple people to whom this has happened. But I'm curious about one person in particular. Can you tell me your name? Uh, my name is Moises Alberto Ortega Valdivia. Can you tell me more about him and why he was wanted by the Nicaraguan government in the first place? Moises, like some of the other asylum seekers who we've spoken to, is a pretty high-profile political activist. He's someone who's been protesting the Ortega regime for, for many years. We, we belong to a group. It's called Juventud Rebelde here in Nicaragua. Uh, we founded it like 10 years ago in we went against the government because of our family background also that uh, fought in the, in the Contra army in the 80s. And in 2017, he was imprisoned by the regime and tortured, I mean, really horribly. I was in jail because we were protesting against the, uh, the fraud in the elections in that year. I was there for two days. I was tortured. They were asking me some questions about uh, why I was going against the government, what I, I didn't like uh, Daniel Ortega. His interrogators attached live wires to his genitals. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, he was held for a long time, basically in secret. And then his wife, who's also uh, a pretty well-known political activist, was at a protest and was beaten up. She was pregnant at the time, beaten up by a Nicaraguan police officer, and she later miscarried. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, for years, the whole family basically has been involved in this struggle against the Ortega regime. Do you remember a particular moment when you you decided, okay, this is it, we're done? Yeah, they came to our house and they took everything that we own. They said that they were going to kill us if we were continuing uh, talking against the government. The second time they did that, uh, they came to the house and I stood up against the police and they broke my arm and they broke my, my wife's nose. If they kept on pushing the limits, if they kept on protesting, eventually they were going to be killed. Um, and so they decided that it was time. it was time to leave the country. 
And so how did they get to the U.S. and what happened after they got here? They decided late last year to leave the, to leave Nicaragua. They traveled first to Mexico. They spent a little bit of time in Mexico getting the paperwork they needed, basically, to travel to the U.S.-Mexico border. And so, so, so what did that involve? Like, like, what were the things that they knew that they needed to have in order to present their best case to the U.S.? So it involved a couple of things. First, it involved like gathering a bunch of documentation that supported their cases. And for Moises and his wife and the other asylum seeker who was traveling with them, there was so much documentation. There were videos of Nicaraguan police shooting at them, numerous death threats on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, there were State Department reports that alluded to confrontations that they had had with Nicaraguan police officers. There were statements from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, about what, what the Nicaraguan government's doing against protesters. Yeah, from my understanding, it's exceptionally rare to be able to document an asylum case like this comprehensively and this compellingly. Yeah, I mean, Moises filled an entire backpack, basically, with documentation. And he wrote a five-page document that mentioned the names of particular people within the Ortega regime who had either tortured him or who had threatened him in, in, in some way. He felt pretty confident in the case that he was about to make. And they got to the U.S. side of the, of the border. And their, their intention was to present themselves to immigration agents. Right? They weren't trying to evade arrest or anything like that. The whole point was to turn themselves in, begin their asylum process. So that's what they did. They found, very quickly, found a Border Patrol agent uh, and explained in English and Spanish that they were there to apply for asylum. They were telling us that uh, we were going to be sent back to Nicaragua because right now the government wasn't issuing any political asylum to anybody that came through the, to the gates because it was, it was a, a new law. What happened next was was shocking to them and to basically anyone who follows immigration law and the way that the U.S. asylum system has been dismantled. They were they were expelled. We never thought that we were gonna like uh, send us back. We thought that we were gonna have the the right to go to an in front of a judge. They never made us take the interview about the, if we were really afraid of going back to Nicaragua. So this backpack full of documents and, and documentation of, of all the things that had happened to Moises and his family, it, he was never able to present that to officials in the U.S. All of their belongings were taken from them. So this backpack full of documents was taken from them. They took everything that we had. They took our, our backpacks. They took our clothes. We, I remember that we had sweaters. And they put us in, uh, in jail. During covid a lot of families and unaccompanied minors are not taken in directly into ICE custody. They're taken to hotels. Mm. So they can be better isolated? So I think the idea is they're not as likely to contract COVID from other inmates, but they're also, they also won't be released. I was traveling with my daughter, she was nine, and my wife. And they were treated like, like slaves, like delinquents also. They're put in jail. They didn't care there was a, a child with, with us. The guard won't let him sleep with his wife in the same bed, so he's he's all like on a couch. And the guard, he says, is just sort of staring at them the whole time. That's so weird. Yeah, they're not able to leave the hotel room. They're just stuck there. So they're like, they're imprisoned in a hotel, just like on the side of the highway in South Texas. When, when we were there, we were asking that we want to see a lawyer. And then and they said uh, we didn't have the right to do that because we were uh, delinquents. And I asked them, why, why are we delinquents? Is it, and I didn't know that it was illegal to apply for asylum in the States. 
And so, and they told me that shut up, to shut up. Then I was that I was a, a wear back, that I had no rights, and they kept me in jail without shower for 15 days with the same clothes. And then what happened after that? So, they are then taken to an airport. Um, there's a plane there waiting for them, and they board the plane. They're all handcuffed. And my wife was really, really scared, and she was crying. My daughter was, she was sick. She had, she had temperature, so. They gave her a, a medicine, which is we, we didn't authorize that. So she won't like cry or speak or something like that. Moises describes this moment where the pilot of the plane announces that they're preparing to land in Nicaragua. And I think even up until that point, he still wasn't entirely convinced that they were actually going to land. But at that moment, when the pilot said that they were going to land in Managua, everyone starts screaming, crying. And I mean, people basically assume that they're going to be immediately imprisoned and tortured upon returning to Managua. So the plane lands, they line them all up on the runway. There are a bunch of uh, police officers and, and military officers on the runway taking photos of them, taking their IDs away. And he knows he's watching these Nicaraguan police officers read and look at all the other material that people have. And he basically thinks to himself, they're going to see the statement that I wrote, which names particular members of the regime who tortured him. All of it is like incriminating to him. Yeah. And he thinks this is basically like a death sentence. I'm carrying this thing and they're going to use it to just basically put me away forever. And then he starts thinking, well, then what happens to my daughter? What are they going to do to my daughter? The only family unit that was sent back that day was us. It was me, my wife, and my daughter. Oh. What happened is this guy, they put us in, in some kind of detention facility right now where we get off the plane. That was scary, you know, because what are they going to do with my daughter? They're going to, like, rape her or something, you know? I mean, he's going through, like, this deep, dark hole of thoughts. So he decides, like, it's like this spur-of-the-moment decision. He doesn't know what to do. So what I, what I did is I ate it. Really? I just started eating it. He decides he's going to eat his asylum paperwork. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I swallow it because I didn't want to, like, throw in the trash because I saw I, I thought some guy might see me. He describes the feeling of, as being on drugs, like, just, like, he didn't know what to do. He, like, suddenly got this, like, surge of, of like, kind of crazed energy. I was really, really scared, man. It was terrible. Wait, you ate a five-page statement? Yeah, I just started like chewing it like like a like a horse, man, and I I saw it as I could. And then he goes to one of the police officers, and he's like, "I need a glass of water. Can you please give me some water?" And the guy gives him a cup of water, and he kind of like takes this deep breath and gets back in line. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. 
Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. Monarchmoney.com slash podcast. So the fact that they were never able to present their case, that they didn't get a court date for an asylum hearing, I mean, isn't that illegal? Like, isn't that part of the rights that we grant people who are seeking asylum in the U.S., that they deserve at least a hearing, even if oftentimes they're denied after those hearings? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it violates not just um, U.S. immigration law, but international refugee law. The term to describe uh, when someone is sent directly back to the the place that they're fleeing is called refoulement. Um, and there's this principle of non-refoulement that countries are not able to just send someone who's fleeing torture, who's fleeing persecution in their country of origin directly back to that place. They, they're entitled to due process. So why is this happening? Like, why are Nicaraguan refugees suddenly being treated differently than they were before and not being allowed the opportunity to have an asylum hearing? There are two answers to that question. One is that this is part of a larger attempt by the Trump administration to dismantle the American asylum system as we know it. A little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, um, asylum seekers were told that if they wanted to begin the asylum process, they had to start, they had to wait for their hearings in Mexico. That was under a program called MPP. And so in some ways, what we're seeing now is like the next step in this arc, which is that now when you come to the border, uh, you're not waiting in Mexico for your asylum case. You're, you, you don't get an asylum case. There's, there's no, an asylum case is not opened. What is the other reason? So the other reason is that in March, the CDC put out an order that could be read to say that basically m- migrants or migration poses a potential public health risk. And it was then used by the Department of Homeland Security to say, well, you know, this order, what it really means is that we have to shutter the immigration system. And whether or not that's what CDC intended, I'm not sure. But I think DHS saw it as an opportunity to say, well, this can be used, the pandemic can be used as a way to effectively close our border to asylum seekers. And that's and that's what's happened. So did you talk to officials at DHS about this and about the sense that maybe the rationale that they have for this change in policy is bogus? Yeah, I mean, DHS would not formally comment uh, for our story, but the CBP commissioner, basically like the head of Border Patrol, said a few weeks ago that individual Border Patrol agents would have the discretion to allow some asylum seekers to continue the asylum process if they felt that those those people were, you know, had a legitimate asylum argument. I mean, this is a, a pretty wild thing to say for a couple of reasons. Border Patrol agents are not asylum officers. They have no training in recognizing what asylum case is legitimate, what asylum case isn't legitimate. That, that doesn't hold any water. The other problem with the argument is that it's just not true. Border Patrol agents are not, as far as we can tell, as far as any reporter can tell, are not allowing asylum seekers who enter the U.S. to continue through the process. They are expelling almost all of them. But what seems 
confusing or ironic about what is happening is that it's not like the U.S. has not recognized that there are risks to political dissidents in Nicaragua. You said that Moises had a statement from Secretary of State Pompeo basically talking about the very crimes that he's been a victim of. In Nicaragua, when citizens peacefully protested Social Security benefits, they were met with sniper fire. Critics of the government have faced a policy of exile, jail, or death. So how is it that the U.S. on the one hand can condemn this oppressive government and say that it is in fact oppressive, but at the same time not even give a hearing to the people who are trying to escape that government? Yeah, I mean, that that is the, the fundamental question. Um, and, and it's something that, that Moises was just baffled by. This is not the way the United States operates. This is supposed to be like a democratic way here. I thought I was like having flashbacks. Like I was thinking that, oh my God, this is like being in Nicaragua. The same, the same, the same way they treat people over there. They don't give you the right to to nothing, to have a a due process in in the legal system. It's just whatever they said that you have to do. In some ways, I mean, the reason these asylum seekers came to the U.S. was not just because it's the U.S. It's because this was a government that had been saying all the right things from their perspective. So what is going to happen to Moises? And does he have a plan for the future? One thing that I asked Moises about when he was on that plane coming back to Nicaragua, one of the hardest things about it was that he never thought he was going to see Nicaragua again. Like when he said goodbye, he thought it was like forever. And then now he's back only a few weeks later. Right now, Moises is in a, in a different safe house. He's staying in an attic and his daughter is staying somewhere else because he, he thought it would be too dangerous for her to stay with them. And he's just waiting. He knows that at some point they're going to have to try to cross the border again, um, that it's too dangerous for them to stay in Nicaragua for much longer because eventually they'll be targeted. And it's just a question of finding the right moment. Kevin Seif is the Mexico and Central America bureau chief for The Post. On Thursday, seven members of Congress wrote a letter to President Trump in response to Kevin's story. They asked that the U.S. stop deporting Nicaraguan political dissidents seeking asylum. In the letter, they wrote, quote, Your deportations of politically persecuted Nicaraguans run counter to U.S. values. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Kasika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Spornovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 